name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Mary Lou's just read to us from the Sermon on the Plain, which is like the Sermon on the Mount, except for it was on a plain. Um, uh, it's a version in Luke, and uh, what she has read is sort of almost getting towards the fever pitch ending of this timeless sermon, in which Christ um, says something that's very uncomfortable, frankly, deeply countercultural, and just plain obnoxious. <clears throat> he says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, in preparation for this sermon, I did a straw poll of people I've run into this week, and I asked them if they had enemies and who these enemies were. And almost to a person, people told me that they don't have enemies. I'm not really the kind of person who's got enemies. That's great. Uh, we live in the most divided society uh, the world has like, ever seen, it feels like at least. Um, from what I can tell online, everyone feels strongly about other people, and blame is thrown in all sorts of different directions. So either my friends are all deeply out of touch, or they're lying. I don't think it's that magnanimous of a town. <clears throat> In fact, one person who said that they didn't have enemies uh, and, and that they basically get along with everyone had just finished denigrating a fellow mother and former friend in the most uh, ugly terms imaginable. And then another man who told me that had been estranged from his father for 15 years. And then I heard it from a neighbor who had uh, posted the most vicious attacks on the other side the last election. So we resist the word enemy. We don't want to be thought of uh, as having enemies. We certainly don't want to be think thought of as someone else's enemy. That does not um, jive with our view of the world. Um, and yet there is a deep sense of us versus them, of, of those people being an obstacle to a better world or to our own personal happiness. Now, Christ has a pretty expansive understanding of who your enemy is, because if the word itself is too loaded, just think about this. Uh, it, your enemies include anyone who has attacked you, who's struck you, um, anyone who's taken something from you, uh, or cursed you. Now, to be cursed is simply someone who you've had words with. It also includes those who've abused you. Um, if enemy is too loaded, then uh, simply think of an enemy as someone with whom you have an adversarial or antagonistic relationship. If you've been sued or sued another person, you understand what I'm talking about. Or if you've had a terrible falling out with a former friend or a sibling or a neighbor, then you understand this instinctually. But to burrow down a little bit deeper into sort of everyday life, if you've had a rival for the love of another person, or there's someone who has spread a terrible rumor, an untrue rumor about you, then you know what Christ is talking about, and, and you cannot stand it. Uh, every time I talk to someone who works in the academic setting, there's invariably another person, either at another school or perhaps within their own department, who keeps getting the grants that they want or gets the uh, job that they want, or gets asked to speak the thing that they think they should get to speak at, there's always a rival, a, 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 a nemesis, even. Um, 
I, but closer to home, aren't our enemies uh, our frenemies? Right? That's a great word. I think it captures a whole lot of life. Our deepest enemies, there was a study recently that said your um, blood pressure goes up much higher in the presence of a frenemy than it does uh, in, with someone that you actually actively detest. Your complicated friend, your difficult friend, or your difficult sibling, uh, or your, your spouse. Another person I was speaking to this week said that about once a year, he and his wife raise their voices at each other and really go at it. And for about 40 to 55 minutes, um, they are one another's enemies. Now, you might hear that and say, gosh, they sound like they got an amazing marriage. Um, uh, but you cannot go through life without making a few enemies out of your loved ones. What is it? P.J. O'Rourke, who died this week, the humorist, said that Christ told us to love our enemies. He didn't say we couldn't have them. That's clever. So maybe someone has occurred to you. I say this all just to get a few faces in your mind uh, with whom to take issue with Christ's injunction. Because he says, do not strike, do not take, but turn and give. When faced with malice or injustice, he is advocating for no retaliation, no revenge, we want to hear these words and we want to qualify them. We'll say, well, surely he's not talking about that person. Surely he's not. He's talking about only the people that apologize. Then we can love them. Uh, there's no qualifiers here. And he says it in other books of the Bible, too. It's not me that says it. I don't want it, this to be true. Do not escalate. Do not escalate. Instead, he is advocating for something called non-complementary behavior. From anyone who takes away your coat... Do not withhold even your shirt. This is the Christ's school of conflict resolution, and it stinks. Okay? If you're hearing it correctly, you should be offended. He's saying, be a doormat. Be an enabler. And we think, well, if I don't stand up to this, nothing will change. I was reminded of that this week. I was reading a, uh, um, an advice column in Wired Magazine, which usually has to do with technology. And so someone was writing in to their advice columnist, um, and they said that they were feeling pressure to put up one of those ring surveillance systems. Now, maybe you know what a ring surveillance system is. It is um, if you, it's those little cameras that greet you at people's doors. They're very neighborly. Uh, this advice columnist was thinking, you know, I understand why, but it just doesn't, I'm not sure it's a good look. Um, now, why do we have ring surveillance cameras now? Um, out beyond just sort of the funny videos we get to see on Instagram of what people do. Well, the reason is because during COVID, uh, we all started ordering everything to be delivered to our homes. And this saw a massive increase in what are called porch pirates. Okay? Theft. People come up and they steal your Amazon box. And you sort of think, like, oh, great, you got a few USB cables. Great for you. <laughs> However, uh, this is very real. And in fact, crime of this kind is, is up astronomically. In New York City, um, car theft is up 92% from 2019. And, but the porch pirates is a real phenomenon. And for people who are really trying to make ends meet and need to be able to rely on these things, it's, it's terrible. So you put up a ring surveillance camera and you know that you can get 
uh, those, these folks caught in the act. Well, Megan O'Geeblin, who is the advice columnist for Wired, had a very um, inconvenient take on this problem. She said that today, based on the ring surveillance and sort of next door uh, Facebook community group understanding of being a neighbor, uh, you might think that being a good neighbor is to be a kind of detective, a citizen willing to sniff out interlopers, collect evidence, and work in conjunction with law enforcement to keep the neighborhood safe. But she quotes Kierkegaard's interpretation of this very passage, the passage to those who take your coat, give them your shirt too. She says that he, Kierkegaard, believed that Christ's commandment offers a far more radical proposition, one that requires us to surrender our commitment to justice, fairness, and private property. If someone steals your coat, you should give them your shirt as well, or to update the analogy, if a porch pirate swipes your Amazon package, throw in your FedEx parcel to boot. Now, why would Jesus say something so irritating? And t t just awful advice. Um, well, maybe he's read uh, the Butter Battle book by Dr. Seuss. Do you know this book? It was a formative book for me and my childhood. I don't know if it's been sort of canceled yet, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book about escalation. And it's a book about how the, the second you get into this zero sum, uh, I'm just going to get do to you what you've done to me. I want to you to hurt or you to be afraid to the, the way that I've been afraid. Uh, it, it, escalation doesn't work. It, it ends in everyone losing everything. In the same way, it could be that Christ understood that recrimination never leads to a lessening of antagonism. Punishment never produces healing. It may stop the injustice, but in terms of the good feeling, love, that is not how you get there. Think about it in terms of your own life. Um, it, it, parents never win back their children through criticism. It just doesn't happen. It's never happened. It never will. Uh, people who are divorced never fall back in love through um, uh, mediation and uh, uh, litigation. It, it has never happened, and it never will happen. It will only create an increase in antagonism. This is perhaps why the alcoholics say that alcohol is not the thing that kills you, it's resentment. The resentments we harbor, the people we want to get back at, those who we want to suffer the same way that we've been made to suffer, that is what kills a person. But as Robert Hayden, the American poet who Stephen Colbert quoted last week, said, we must not be frightened or cajoled into accepting evil as our deliverance from evil. We must not be frightened or cajoled into accepting evil as our deliverance from evil. Perhaps Jesus is telling us to love our enemies because he is in favor of a love that knows no bounds. You see, he himself was unique in expanding the uh, limits of your enemy, of your neighbor, to include those outside the Jewish ethnic bounds of the time, the national lines. He wanted to, to, to advocate for a love that extends beyond the limits of reason or natural sympathy. A love that extends, yes, to your worst nightmare. Now, we saw this this past season on Ted Lasso. And if you haven't seen this season, I'm going to give away something minor, but it's important. 
Um, Ted Lasso is about uh, is a show about an American football coach who is hired uh, to coach an English soccer team, and even though he seems to know nothing about soccer, and it's kind of a it's, it's a very sweet it's just actually a show about kindness. Uh, but the one deeply mean person, uh, the grouchiest man on earth. In fact, he played next to Oscar the Grouch this past week on Sesame Street. Is a guy named Roy Kent. Okay, Roy Kent is a very tough masculine character who takes no gruff. He's he no guff from anyone. In fact, he's extremely gruff, and he drops f bomb after f bomb. He is not um, approachable. He's not warm and fuzzy. And in season one, we watch as he's and he's an older player who's a bit of a has been. He's he's grappling with his decline, and it's a very difficult um, process for him as it is for anyone. And he stops playing at the end of the season and he becomes a coach. But he's very upset when Ted hires back his chief rival on the team, a young upstart named Jamie Tart, who had humiliated Roy, who had shamed him in front of other people, who had made his life very difficult. In fact, who also used to date his current girlfriend. These guys are enemies. And when Roy is hired to coach, he says, I will coach everyone on the team except for him. He is not deserving of my sympathy or attention. Okay, so flash forward, Roy's coaching. The team has its big game at Wembley Stadium. And Jamie, his sort of semi-estranged father, asks for tickets, which Jamie has to give him. He gives him and his friends some tickets, even though you can tell his relationship with his dad isn't that good. Well, Jamie has his father, who is basically his own antagonist, in his mind during the game, and he chokes completely. They have their worst game, and they're defeated, and it's embarrassing, and it's shaming. And afterwards, they're in the inner sanctum of masculinity. They're in the, 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 the locker room, and they're licking their wounds. And uh, Roy is there, and Jamie's there, and all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door, and Jamie's father walks in. And in front of the whole team, he starts to dress his son down. Kind of in jest, but you could tell it's very serious. He starts to shame his son. It's all your fault for losing this match. They were wrong to have ever given you the ball. You could have done that in your sleep. And then, and Jamie's silent. And you watch as this arrogant young man is, is, is just absolutely humiliated. And then his father asks for, uh, to go back out on the pitch so he can take some funny photos with his friends for Instagram. And Jamie finds a little shred of self-respect and says, I don't think so. I don't think that's a good idea. And his father gets upset. He starts getting in his face. He says, you're, you're nothing. You'll never be anything. Don't forget where you came from. He starts getting increasingly uh, violent and in his face. And finally, Jamie snaps and he punches his father square on the nose and silences him. They carry his father out, and Jamie is sitting there absolutely stunned. All of these people who he's supposed to be impressed, who he's supposed to be impressive to, have seen him, uh, seen where he's come from. They've, they've seen him be uh, uh, insulted by the very person who should be most supportive. The room is totally quiet. And then we watch as Roy walks wordlessly across the locker room and embraces Jamie. He embraces him and Jamie is all tight and then all of a sudden you see him collapse 
and he starts weeping in this man's arm. Roy has loved his enemy, and we what, as, we, as, as the tears flow, we realize that hope will rue the day. That Jamie's betrayal and the cycle of recrimination between father and son is not the end of the story. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. It's a beautiful illustration of love for one's enemy, of love interrupting the consequences of our actions, which is very good news indeed, because many of us have done and said very stupid things. Now, this isn't just a difficult commandment, though. The, past, the, the purpose of this sermon is not to just be a little bit more like Roy Kent. That would be great. I wish you could do that. Go out and try it. That would be great. Well, this is not just a, 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 a hard ethic. This is an impossible one. It cuts against the grain of all of our instincts for comeuppance. No, the law tells us to love like Roy, but the gospel tells us that Jesus loves us, loves you like Roy loves Jamie. What does that mean? That means in your shame, in your vulnerability, in your defeat, and yes, even when you've done something in retaliation that you deeply regret, he crosses the room to you. He doesn't wait for an apology or an invitation. He comes and he embraces you. That's what this passage is about. It's about the love that God has for you, you who have acted in all sorts of ways that have created enemies and have, 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 have fostered them in return. He does not dole out his kindness to the deserving. Jesus himself says what? The Most High is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Jesus is Roy Kent, and you are Jamie Tart. Amen.